we're in the middle of a series in preparation for Pentecost, which is a couple Sundays from now. We're in the middle of a series in Acts. So it's a little bit back to front because Pentecost is the beginning of the church, but we're actually exploring just what the Spirit has meant to the church by seeing certain key moments in the life of the church that Luke records, who's the writer of Acts. Today we come to one of the most significant displays of of God's power and what the gospel means to this world. We come to, a, to the time where Paul finds himself in Athens, having been chased out of town, two towns to be specific, recently. And so he's heading south and he's hanging out in Athens, a little bit bigger city than where he's been and hopefully a certain anonymity. But as the text that we heard read to us in Acts 17 says, he was in Athens and he was greatly disturbed by the idols that he saw there. And we're going to see just what that meant, and it being in Athens is no accident. So much has been written about this episode in Paul's ministry and in the life of the church, because the reality is, it is a master class, if you will, on giving or in speaking of the gospel to a world that doesn't know Jesus, to a world that is skeptical, to a world that is dismissive, to a world that has its own host of other gods and other philosophies. Wondering if that's kind of sounding familiar at all about where we might live in the times that we're in. In some senses, nothing has changed. But we're not going to spend a ton of time doing master class type lessons. There's a few things that we'll pick up on with what Paul is doing. Because I really feel that what what I think this text is speaking to each of us about is how to... uh, see how God leads Paul to come alongside people that are well engaged in the center of the culture of its time, very thoughtful, but also very much in need of a gospel. You'll see Paul come with patience and with explanation, but also with clarity. And so as I said, Paul is in, he's in Athens and he is greatly disturbed by the amount of idols that he sees. Athens, of course, is the center of civilization. If you ever had a book on Western civilization, chances are it had a picture of the Parthenon on it. Uh, Paul is seeing firsthand the Parthenon. He's seeing it is the temple to the god, goddess Athena, from which Athens derives its name. So it is really essentially a ground zero of, of the Greco-Roman culture at the time, with its pantheism and with its philosophies. Two particular ones are mentioned here in this text. They were dominant in their day, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Stoicism was the more prominent of them, but Epicureanism, N.T. Wright makes the point, is far more prominent today. 2,000 years later, the Epicurean mindset, which says that there's a great separation between life on earth and how we live through things and, and a religious or spiritual later on or afterlife. We don't really know what that means, but we do know what life means here. And so Epicureans spent a lot of time trying to understand life here, not just philosophically, but to the extent that it could be found scientifically. The word Adam and the, the whole idea of seeing creation in that sort of construct comes out of that Epicurean life. The highest goal, if you're an Epicurean, was to actually have a life that you found was meaningful to you, was satisfying to you, was something you were able to control and provided you a measure of fulfillment and rest. 
It's fundamentally self-centered because with a spiritual realm that's in the far-off distant future, what need is there to be concerned about later on? Today is what matters. As I said, N.T. Wright says, this is our dominant culture in the West today. But Athens is the, the cradle of this civilization, the cradle of much of what still is in our own culture at this point. So Paul walks through the area and he sees idol after idol. As a good Pharisee, his heart is challenged, it is hurt, it is wounded. He sees that the God that he worships is the God who is not honored. And in one sense, you know, he's, he's, he says, he's, one, one translation has him saying he's irked. Okay, we've all been irked. He's irked that, that they're missing this. He's irked that this God who is holy and righteous and who's done all these things, who's rescued Israel, who's formed this people of God, this God is the God who's not being honored. But I think he's also bothered as a good pastor by the fact that if you're ensnared with an idol, if you're focused on something that actually cannot deliver what you hope it to be, you're missing out on the one God, on God, the one who can actually give you what you were made for because he is the one who made you. And so I think it's out of that background that, that Paul comes and he speaks to them. And he, he starts teaching in the synagogues and in the public squares. And he says, okay, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Eventually, they hear about him, this babbler. We want to hear what this babbler is saying. And so they invite him into the Areopagus. This is the place where anybody who had a new idea would be featured. I don't know. It's kind of like America's Got Talent version back 2,000 plus years ago. Athens got talent. So we've got Paul featured tonight, and Paul's going to talk about just this God that he serves. And when you see how he starts, I think it's instructive for us. Well, before we get there, let, I, I, just, I want us to be into that place of, of motivation, if you will, uh, that, that has Paul. This thing where he says, you know what, I'm concerned about the idols that have captured these people, whether it's a certain philosophy or a particular lifestyle, a pursuit after wealth, a pursuit after fame. Those idols that they went after haven't really changed in our day very much. He desires that they would be free from that. He, he is waiting for them to come to him. He just speaks about the gospel. And then he is invited by the people that run the Areopagus to come and speak. Sometimes we need to be aware of that as, as a motivation. That oftentimes, have you, have you ever found this in, in your life? I'm sure you have. Where there's somebody that you care about, somebody that is on your mind, on your heart, you've been praying for them. But the time isn't right, or so you think, in order to speak to them in any meaningful way about the God whom you love and the Lord that you serve. I, I think most of us could say, yes, I've, I've had those times. I, I'm in the middle of a time like that right now. I am praying for the opportunity. It's in, instructive to see how Paul waits for his opportunity to come into the Areopagus and to fully declare He's invited because they're philosophers and they're curious. Some, we get invited when we um, 
after some history of faithfully living for Christ, of being in that place of the blessings and benefits that He provides. If you're in Christ, then, then we know that, that all the burdens that we have, we can give over to Him. We can give them over with a hope and expectation, not a resignation characteristic of the Stoics, but necessarily a hope and expectation that He'll actually fulfill the prayers that we are praying. And that when we do that, we trade our, our anxieties for His care. Cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. And so if we live out of that place of presence of Christ, if we live out of that place of being uh, branches connected to the vine, as the gospel reading had, then we can be in that place of saying, man, I, I would love to speak to you about the Lord who loves me. And sometimes, well, not sometimes, I have found that people will take note of the life that we have, oftentimes, if they don't know the Lord, for future reference. For when things get bad, when it, the fire starts smoking in, in their lives and there's time to break the glass, then they might be more interested in what, how you work that out, why you're not freaking out about these things that are going on in your life. So there's something to be said for Paul's patient presentation of the gospel and the, the waiting for him to, to be called up where he can be fully on display. So that's just a little word on, on the motivation I think the main part of today, though, for me, as I was in this text, is, is seeing that Paul's presentation of that gospel, if you, you have your Bible, it's verses 24 to 28, it talks about who is God. He's like, I love the fact that you guys are super religious. Let me actually inform you what you're missing, because that will trump what you think you know now. The God who made this world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. Sorry, Parthenon. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So all these guys that are running around making stuff happen in the temples, they don't really have a job. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, and they, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, this is how powerful this God is that Paul's talking about, and the boundaries of their lands. You thought it was all about you conquering other folks, Sparta, you know, etc. Well, from one level, true, but God has allowed these things. God did this. Here's the key. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Why is God doing all these things in this earth, creating people, creating, giving them lands, appointed times in history, allowing them to experience some of the blessings of this world, even amidst the hardships. He did this so that people would actually say, I think there's something more to what's going on here than I can see, and I want to find out what that is. Perhaps reach out for him and find him. Folks, we serve a God who wants to be found, who is actually looking for us. And our friends and our family members who don't know God in the same way that we do, He is looking for them. I think this is, for me, the most important part of the text this afternoon. To, you know, the gospel um, can have a number of layers to it, but it begins with the fact that God wants to be found by us. And He does... He moves heaven and earth. He sends his son. 
perhaps we would reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul, being the excellent academic that he is, actually starts quoting poets from antiquity. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so Paul is coming alongside the philosophers in the Areopagus. And he's at the starting point where they are, knowing their poetry, knowing their, their sense of the world. But he's also declaring to them a God who has made all that they know, even though they didn't know it was God who made it. And saying that this very God who provides all these good things is the one who wants to be found by you. He goes on to explain the gospel. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance of not knowing who he was or creating, you know, gods in our own image, idols, if you will. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He, why? Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Why does he set, say it's time to repent? Because Jesus has already come. Because Jesus has not only come, next week we will celebrate the ascension. Jesus has gone to heaven. And now the church is here presenting the gospel. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And this is where some of the people in the Areopagus start to tune out. Like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, you know, I, we thought we were on a good kind of philosophical, poetic kind of thing, but yeah, this is weird. Nevertheless, we find that some people come to faith. Damaris is one. Dionysius is another. He later, according to church tradition, becomes the bishop of Athens. And so this is having impact, to be sure. But the thing for us to start, the thing that strikes me the most is this idea of, of the fact that God is not far from any one of us. So much of why people, I think, are lost is because they, they're Epicureans. They think that God is out there. Or they've suffered some issue, some tragedy, some challenge in the midst of something that seems very overwhelming. And all of us go through such things. And it's quite understandable to think in such times that what, what kind of God allows me to do that? I don't know who that God is. I'm not sure I want to know if this is what I have to experience in this life. So it is understandable, but we cannot camp out there. Because we've actually been made for this God who longs to be found by us. There's an anxiety, honestly, that we feel if we don't know him. I think it's somewhat of an, you know, think of it as a separation anxiety. A term in psychology, when you're separated from something that you're attached to, usually a parent, this is oftentimes how we find it, we, you, you you need to be reconnected to them in order for the anxious symptoms to subside. Anxiety is a bit of an alarm bell letting us know that this is going on for us. We're not where we're supposed to be. Vicki and I had a dog for 15 years named Casey who was, had her own version of separation anxiety. She would uh, last for a certain amount of hours before the little alarm bells went off. And heaven help us if uh, it started to get dark. And so now she was, really, she was really unhappy. She would show it in various ways, as only dogs can do. And uh, some of you know what that means, and so we have to clean up. And we came back a little bit too late. Uh, sometimes she would, I don't know, you know, how does the dog brain work? We don't know. But we, we had these slash, sash windows that just, when it was hot, we'd have a screen only, and she would bust through the screen. 
like jailbreak. And fortunately, we had neighbors that found her and got her back numerous times. But like, what dog? What is with you? <laughs> she was a great dog. But she had clear separation anxiety. I think so much of what we feel, so much of what we read about today, going on in our culture, people feeling greatly overwhelmed, is because there is a sense of, well, who? I'm not connected to any to a level of love and care and concern and power and somebody who knows the future. And it's to these people and frankly to ourselves that I think we need to hear what Paul says to the people in the Areopagus. He is not far from any one of us. He is closer than we think. I would love us I think we can all, the, the, the best gospel presentation that any of us can do, do is just to say, Lord, uh, just to say to our friends and family, here's how Jesus works in my life. If we can say with reasonable credibility experience, though he is not far from any one of us, he's not far from me, he's closer than I realize, and here's how I get back when I am astray. Here's how I get back when I'm in the middle of some separation anxiety mode. Some of you guys know, in the middle of last week, this past week, um, we were, uh, our, our daughter is six months pregnant. We were looking forward to a shower that was going to be thrown yesterday, but Wednesday we both tested positive for COVID, which was a total drag. Uh, Vicky still has it, so we had to cancel this. And um, just so you can hear the rest of the story, I've tested negative today and yesterday. So <laughs> anyway... So we're, we're like, I, I go to bed Wednesday night just thinking, I'm so bummed by this. This is like, now in the grand scheme of things, okay, that's kind of light. But still, but you know, we wanted, we're expecting friends and the joy and the celebration of all that. And then somehow in the middle of the night, I wake up thinking about this and thinking about, I don't know what I was thinking about. How could I solve it? What's the next step? Maybe there's a different date. Like, and the Lord has told me enough over the years, like, okay, four in the morning, I never look at the time, because that's not good. But whatever it is, it's still dark, and this is not the time to figure this stuff out. But I, I just, at the end, I, I just, I had, I, I prayed. I realized that God is closer than I realized, you know, I realized he's closer than I thought in that moment. And so I literally just began to say scriptures that I'd memorized. They didn't necessarily have to apply to the actual situation. But they were a connection with the God who's closer than I think. The God who wants to be found. And he particularly wants to be found in the hardest situations that we find ourselves. No matter how temporal, you know, okay, we'll, we'll figure out a, a shower date. Um, or how deep, or how life-altering. He's closer than we think. We practice that closeness. To the extent we do that, we, we realize, we, we can say to those around us, here's how I get through the challenges that I'm in the middle of. I realize that God is closer. And when I think he is far away, I remember that he is looking for me. And so I can keep my eyes open and find him and come draw closer to him. How to do that? Let me close with this. The gospel reading of the vine and the branches, you can't get, frankly, a better metaphor Jesus is saying this to his disciples on the night he's betrayed. This is the upper room discourse. He's giving them, you know, the, the best he has because he's not going to be with them much longer. 
And he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Sometimes we can let life kind of create some sort of temporary severing. It's not a total severing. It's like pinching a nerve. It's like, you know, you pinch your nerve and your arm falls asleep and you're like, well, this is not working very well. So unpinch the nerve. So turn to the Lord and allow him to see that remind, you know, allow him to remind us that he is the vine and we are the branches and that he desires that we would what? Bear fruit. It is the fruit that comes from the branch of our, that is our life, but it only comes through the source who is the vine, the source of all nutrients, the source of all water, the source of everything that we need in order to bear the fruit that he's planned, in order to be able to speak to those about the Lord who is nearer than we realize. He is not far from any one of us. I want to give a shout out to my mom for, since it's Mother's Day, and she's long gone to be with the Lord uh, almost 30 years ago. But she instilled in me through the bringing me to a church like this with a sanctuary of sacred space. It actually had a sanctuary lamp. If you've seen some liturgical churches, they're red, they're always burning. It's a reminder of the presence of God. Sanctuary itself is from the Latin sanctus, holy. It is a place where God dwells. And yes, he is everywhere in a sense, but there are particular times and particular places where we are reminded of his closeness. And a sanctuary is just such a place. It's why it has always had a a particular, I, I mean, I just and see so many ways that God has used that to form me as a child, to form my mind, to form my heart to come after him. And so I'm thankful that my mother took me to a church that had that presence, that, that allowed me to see that he's closer than I realize. He's not as far from me as I might imagine. And he's not far from any one of us as we might imagine. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. And so my hope and prayer and encouragement is that we would realize that today. That out of what Paul says to the philosophers of his day, he's, you know, God uses to say to us, he's not far from any one of us. And that is the basis of the gospel that we can be and we can present to those whom we love.